to the Horror Vanguard, your one-stop shop for everything from Adorno to Zardoz. Prepare to get spooky. <laughs> Comrades, friends, and fans of the dark and macabre in all its forms, welcome to another episode of the Horror Vanguard, a podcast that trawls through the crypts of horror culture, combining the darkest, most spooky content with the most rigorous anti-capitalist leftist theory. Uh, my name is John. I am better known as the Licorice Guy, and joining me is my host and uh, co-host, co-conspirator, uh, comrade, co- co-ghost, co- if you will, co-ghost, if you will. Uh, Ash, Ash, how you doing, man? Uh, doing, doing pretty, pretty good over here. Keeping it spooky. What's new? What's new? What news from the spooky left? I, I think the unquestionably the biggest news, the most important thing that we should all be focusing 100% of our attention on is Zizek calling out Jordan Peterson. Finally. So, so, just, ah, oh, finally. I'm so happy this has happened. <laughs> it is, it, this is. This is the moment that you know, Zizek, Zizek is many of our problematic fave. Yep. Hashtag, hashtag problematic fave. Hashtag problematic bay. <laughs> and see, seeing him call out Peterson, even though it was hashtag problematic, it was it was a joyous moment and everybody who owns a stained sweatshirt was celebrating. Uh he was he was at the Cambridge uh Union, I think. One of those places that should be burned to the ground. Um <laughs> as I've said this many times. My favorite thing was when he said that Peterson can't talk about humans without going off into some weird spiel about lobsters, uh, and which I'm sure Professor Lobster Boy was delighted to hear. And he, Zizek is quite right to call him out for using that ridiculous uh, right-wing propaganda about cultural Marxists, which uh, Peterson has bought into hook, line, and sinker. But it is good that Zizek has stopped having uh, just bad takes and has started doing the philosophical equivalent of shitposting again. Which, which is, the, the, this is his home turf. Like, Zizek was the first Twitter poster. He was doing this before Twitter was around. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it is good. That he also, in the, same, in the same talk, described Steven Pinker as his enemy, which uh, I, I like. I like, I think uh, Zizek is definitely one for holding grudges, so it's quite nice that he's picked a new nemesis in the, in the shape of Steven Pinker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I re- and I really hope I really hope that this this is this, this has been a reawakening for Zizek. This is this is going to bear fruit, and we're going to see him throwing down more often now. Yeah, and um, I I know that he apparently he's been in quite poor health lately, so hope. Hopefully the man is man is uh, back to his best and um, has maybe gotten to take some time off and stop churning out countless self-plagiarized books. Which, <laughs> you know, you're better than that, Slavoj. Well, I would like. Yeah, but to, he is. He is so much better than that. He, I would like we, to we think could, so anyway. <laughs> we 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 could be having a hell in a cell match. 
you know, for the title belt between Zizek and Pinker, if, if he could just stop writing a book for a second, he could do something really important. Absolutely. Oh, like, let's make this happen. <laughs> like, I want to see this happen. Uh, aside from that, the the oh, yeah, the other the other news, the, the other thing that happened this week is apparently, according, I, I made some made some good Trump supporting people online super mad at me this week. You you accidentally revealed that you're an Antifa super soldier. <laughs> uh, yes, there was a, there was a weird MAGA anti Antifa account that decided to tag me and like a dozen other disparate left wing people and just spend the week sending abuse our way, which was alternated between being deeply boring and also hilarious. Uh, I kind of joked that I was going to send Antifa around to their house and they took it as like a super, <laughs> a super serious threat that I was going to send around uh, mobs of people to, to, you know, steal their guns and, you know, <laughs> indoctrinate their children with cultural Marxism, uh, which was which has been fun. My my favorite my favorite part about the exchanges you were having is all of the memes they were posting to try and get you were just the most glorious self owns I've ever seen. Oh, some top tier boomer memes. Like uh, they're they're all just they're all just pictures of Antifa doing the hard work to protect our communities, looking really badass while doing it with text that's like socialists in our neighborhood and, and they look like pro antifa like propag like retro propaganda posters made by somebody who can't current a font I, oh the the formatting like the right cannot meme the, the right has no idea how to communicate in visual form at all uh but yeah my favorite thing was the fact that they all of these memes of like black block who had masked up and you know we're, we're probably you know we're putting their bodies on the line to defend vulnerable communities against enroaching fascism and i was like is this supposed to be bad <laughs> like, right? you've just you've just made these look people look so cool <laughs> uh so that's been fun they found out um my my name which you can do through the power of google uh Wait, which you which you can also do by listening to this podcast by listening to this podcast and uh but at the same time they spent the week trying to uh, at the department of homeland security and the fbi's twitter accounts about me uh not realizing that I do not live in the United States and therefore probably don't come under the jurisdiction of either of those terrible, terrible organizations. You might be you might be just a little bit outside of the reach on that one. And uh, last last thing uh, is the fact that they were very convinced that I was deeply upset that crooked Hillary had lost the 2016 presidential election. Uh, and I, I, for one, have seen your uh, uh, full full back Hillary Clinton still with her <laughs> tattoo. So I know how much that one hurt you. I, I, it was an investment and I am regretting that, <laughs> that back tattoo. <laughs> It wasn't until somebody pointed out that I'm I'm literally a Marxist, um, <laughs> and so probably wasn't a big fan of a centrist neoliberal politician who uh, talks about furthering American imperialism. But that's been fun, you know. Twitter has been a week uh, this week. 
but we are we are back with another episode of uh top notch spooky content um so ash do you only the spookiest only, only the, the best it is both a spooky uh spooky bit of a film and also it's a christmas movie it's it's time to get into the holiday spirit a little bit just just a little get your get your hot chocolate get your eggnog uh, uh curl up on the couch with someone you love and be beset by tiny demons as we talk about the wonderful 1984 holiday classic gremlins directed by joe dante written by chris columbus uh i'm so excited <laughs> I'm just amazed that someone like uh, Chris Columbus, who made his name producing the kind of most basic schlock, middle-of-the-road, bourgeois screenplays and films, is the writer of Gremlins? I'm like, what happened to, (laughs) to 1980s radical Chris Columbus that turned into the dull, uninteresting director of the first two Harry Potter films? But Harry Potter is basically centrist gremlins. <laughs> and so, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's that old saying where as we get older, we drift towards the center. And man, you can see it with this guy. That's so true. Um, so for people who have not seen it, uh, should we let's let's just talk a little bit about what this film is before we get into why we think this is a kind of important and interesting film for, for us on the spooky left. <laughs> Uh, so, Ash, do you want do you want to do you want to kick off a little plot recap? So, open up onto a, a beautiful small American town in early Christmas. People are wandering the streets, shopping in their local shops. Love and the season is in their heart, but a dark shadow looms. An alien force is about to infest their town and destroy everything. Mm-hmm. That force is capitalist realtor Mrs. Deagle. <laughs> uh, we will get onto this more later, but Mrs. Deagle is just... The true monster of the film, the Mrs. True, Deagle. The true villain of this piece is Mrs. Deagle. Um, the, the nightmare at the heart of the American dream is the fact that you have to deal with people who own real estate. <laughs> she's she's a monster. She is just she she is literally worse. We're we're gonna get into this in, in a bit, but she is more horrific. She is she is more monstrous than the gremlins could have ever hoped to be. Oh, a hundred percent. But like before we before we get into that, let's let's just run through real basic what this film is about, right? Let's go from the top. Uh, yeah. So a quick quick uh, quick thirty second rundown of the film. Uh, Randall Randall Peltzer uh, buys a uh, small animal, a mystical creature known as a mogwai off of an elderly Chinese man, uh, gifts it to his bumbling, irresponsible son, who proceeds to break the rules of care for the mogwai. And what are the what are the rules of care for mogwai, Ash? So the three rules, the three things you want to do or don't want to do if you have a mogwai. Mogwai hate bright lights. <laughs> Do not feed them after midnight and never expose them to water. Just don't do it. Just don't do it, people. And this bumbling teenage uh, fool manages to break those three rules almost immediately. They're they're pretty much the first three. But besides besides like have a little jam sesh with with Gizmo, they're pretty much the first three things he tries to accomplish. So uh, Randall finds the Mogwai, uh, nicknamed Gizmo, adorably voiced by Howie Mandel and gifts 
Gizmo to his son, Billy. So Billy manages to break the three rules of uh, good Mogwai best praxis almost immediately. Uh, and we kind of launch into this um, orgy of destruction where the town is almost destroyed. Uh, Billy's home is almost destroyed. Uh, but it does end on a kind of classic 1980s sequel hook. Kind of jump in. Is there, like, where should we start with, with this great bit of 80s cinema? Well, let's just, let's just start right from the top. You know, I think the very, the very first scene, like Gremlins, Gremlins is a rich film full of layers and depth for discussion. And you can pick this one up right from the beginning and, and write an entire book on that first scene. So how does this film open? So the film the film opens up with uh, Randall Peltzer, Billy's father, uh, going going into a Chinese neighborhood to a curiosity shop. He's uh, Randall Peltzer is an inventor. He makes these uh, terrible, useless failure, like as seen on TV gadgets, <laughs> stuff that you would see being sold on like QVC or the Home Shopping Network. And right. It's, like it's, stu- it's stuff where, where the basic pitch is like, have you ever been brushing your teeth and wondered why you didn't know what your current stock evaluations were? <laughs> well, with stock brush, your problems are solved. Uh, and there's a running gag in the film that none of his inventions work like at all. Like there's an orange juicer which, you know, comedically sprays pulp and orange juice all over the kitchen. And there's I, I, w- I will say this for Randall. Um, if if the goal of his inventions is to cover everyone who tries to turn them on in some kind of hilarious goop, then they're a <laughs> wild success. Uh, You're getting sprayed with shaving cream, toothpaste, like ground up orange juice or it, orange pulp. It is classic shtick, right? It's classic. <laughs> kids movie shtick with his inventions so he goes into the shop right this this self-made man trying to hawk his like just rubbish ideas to people yeah and uh, the the elderly gentleman who runs the shop is is kind of completely disinterested in his in his total failure gadgets he doesn't want to carry this in his shop uh because the man's smart the man, that he is a small small business owner, <laughs> right? Yeah, he is. He is keeping his small business afloat by not selling trash. Uh, and then uh, Randall spots or kind of hears the noise of the Mogwai, uh, and decides that he has to have it. You know, there's a kind of good ex- good bit of American capitalist equi- uh, uh, acquisitiveness. You know, he offers he offers the business uh, the uh, the elderly Chinese man who owns this business. He offers him two hundred dollars, but gets knocked back. He gets rebuffed, right? Yeah, yeah. the 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 Mogwai is not for sale. There is no price on on the creature. Which, uh, as anyone who's thought about the logic of neoliberalism will know, uh, can't be allowed to stand, right? As soon as you can quantify, everything has to be quantifiable in the logic of capitalist exchange. You have to be able to put a price on everything. So uh, he actually ends up sending, is, is it the shop owner's grandson? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the shop owner's grandson. Um, Rat Randall Peltzer winds up uh, tricking the boy or depending on how you're reading it, uh, uh, conning him. Like the boy knows his family could use $200 more than they could use uh, a little pet that stays in a box. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he sells the Mogwai to Randall for, for a crisp $200. Randall takes it home, gives it to, gives it to Billy. Uh, 
And I think it's interesting that this film is like explicitly concerned. I mean, we've just touched on it briefly, but this film is definitely all about the class dynamics of Reaganite America. And uh, in contrast to some other kind of, I'm thinking particularly of Chris Columbus's other films like Home Alone, like that family seemed to not have any financial problems whatsoever. But the uh, Pelzer family, you know, they they are they are struggling to get by. Billy has a has a job in a local bank, and he drives like this old uh, clunker. And his dad is, I don't know, maybe maybe dad has now been forced to try and go it alone as like a, an entrepreneur. He's had his job taken away from him, and so like they they seem pretty hard up, right? This is uh, people who are who are trying to work hard to to scratch by, you know. It's definitely it's definitely a, a particular slice in American history where you're seeing this uh, late post-industrial stage where where you're seeing these families who used to be able to sustain themselves on a single income of one person working in an industrial job yep. now facing the situation where that, that really doesn't work out anymore. You really can't have a house on a single income. You can't sustain a family on a single income. And so you see... You know, maybe maybe in uh, Randall's earlier life, he wasn't a complete and total comic failure. (laughs) (laughs) And now that's that's a bit of a stretch. He's trying. The man's trying his best. He's trying his best. Uh, Although he clearly has no gift for this kind of work that he's forced to go into, thanks to uh, the offshoring of work and the uh, de-industrialization, the transfer from an industrial based manufacturing economy to a service based economy. And it's very telling that Billy now works in a bank. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is where we run into the true monstrous villain of the piece, right? For the first time. <laughs> right, yeah, this, 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 is where, this is where the real the real monster shows up and we meet Mrs. Deagle. Turns out the real monster was a capitalist. <laughs> right, the call, the call is coming from inside the economy. <laughs> uh, and Mrs. Deagle turns up and threatens... Like it's genuinely chilling that she threatens uh, Billy, Billy's dog. So Billy's pet dog has like broken a Christmas decoration that she keeps outside, and so she turns up and doesn't. It isn't like a a, a banal or like bloodless threat. She threatens to like steal the dog and brutally torture it to death. Specifically to torture to death in a microwave. Which is just like... Uh, and the crime the crime this dog has committed is it has uh, uh, allegedly, we have no material proof of this, the dog has allegedly broken uh, uh, some imported Christmas decoration like a, like a porcelain snowman. And, and she turns up and goes, you know, it's not like uh, the Wizard of Oz where, where it's like, and I'll get your little dog too. She's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to steal your beloved pet and I'm going to brutally torture this animal to death. And everybody just goes, oh, glad you dodged her. As if that's like, the, right. That's like the, there is no subtext here. It's like people who are the property owners are, are, are just morally wicked. <laughs> and will if you let them will take everything dear from you and will treat it just with the most hideous violence yeah she and, and when when she's threatening the dog too it's not that it's not that she's you know possessed by anger in the moment she's she is happy she oh, is filled with this like so vindictive there's this excitement over the potential of slaughtering this boy's pet. <laughs> so there's this kind of working working town. Billy Billy works in a bank, and his dad is kind of 
got this strange job and there's the the there's the love interest that's Kate who Billy has uh this you know it's that's a kind of sweet subplot that they're cl- you know two young kids who are who are clearly into each other it's it's nice and Kate works at this uh Irish bar in town right which is a sort of down at heel kind of dive bar for again another very blue collar establishment as opposed to the very polished and sort of clean Christmas locations of like maybe later children's films that came out. This is like a this is like a grimy dive bar. For- Especially with um, bringing up Home Alone again, like the bar contrasts with every setting in Home Alone pretty nicely. Yeah, which is which is always so kind of sleek and shiny and you know bright this is like bleak and kind of grimy it's an irish but it is it is worth pointing out that even though even though it is depicted as being kind of a trash bar it is a community establishment and we we see that featured in the film uh with the petition to declare the pub a landmark oh yeah because they're trying to protect this place from the 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 monster that is mrs deagle who wants to presumably demolish it and gentrify the area yeah, yeah, they're they're trying to she's you know like like ostensibly she's going to tear it down and replace it with a McDonald's or something. And you know, it's it is it's an authentic dive bar which is an important place for the kind of working people of the community to maybe kick back a little bit and kind of relax from what they've had to do that day and Mrs. Deagle just wants to use it to make some money. So I like the fact they include that detail of like you got to resist gentrification. It's it's honestly my favorite little detail in the film because that that is you know, like like grassroots community activism using like like all of the tools, material and legal that are available them to them to resist this tide of of, you know, theft. Uh, and of course, uh, the bar is where we also meet one of the kind of key figures of this uh, film, uh, which is uh, the paradigmatic example of the 1980s working class American man uh, Murray Futterman Murray Murray Futterman yes uh, Dick oh, Miller Murray. in a great role do you want to do you want to explain who who is Murray Futterman in the in this film and why is he so why is he so important uh, Murray Murray Futterman is kind of what's become anyway like the classic caricature of of the late industrial uh, Reaganite working man in America who's who's seen his job and his livelihood and, and, and that of all of his friends and family uh, kind of drift away as as industry has left the United States and, and been foisted upon, uh, uh, quote unquote, developing nations. Yeah, uh, Murray's neoliberalism for you. Yes, uh, Murray is uh, kind of singularly obsessed with uh, American industry. And he's always he's always chastising Billy about uh, his his broken down car not working because it's a foreign made vehicle and bragging about his Kentucky Harvester, which has never failed him once. It's been a it's been a tractor that has you know, led him through the years because it's made local. Yeah, there's this weird kind of fetishism of like the manufactured objects. And you, you, we first kind of see Murray when Billy's trying to get to work and his car is, mm-hmm. you know, it's this beat down old clunker uh, as everybody's first car is. And he he's sitting there going, well, that's what you get. That's what you get for buying a foreign car. You're like, what? Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in, in, in this context, Murray, Murray Futterman is still really important and, and relevant today to, to kind of critique and think about in terms of how it's interacting with us on a cultural level. 
because how much of the recent uh, American political scene has just been like obsessed with this idea of like, quote unquote, working class Americans as as a stand in for racial politics. Yeah, absolutely. And Murray, Murray is exactly that when Murray's talking about, you know, how, how horrible foreign made products are. It's it's due to this lack of class consciousness and this kind of like co-opting of class consciousness by, you know, racist ideas. Yeah, I mean, we still see that same kind of discourse floating around when people are like, mm-hmm. oh, you got to listen to people's legitimate concerns in the biggest yes, inverted yes. commas in the world. And, you know, Trump uh, makes all these promises about bringing back jobs. And it's like there is this kind of fetishizing of mm-hmm. those uh, secure, well-paid uh, manufacturing jobs, which simply don't exist now because the labor has been uh, shipped out to... Uh, the global south to the developing economies because that labor is cheaper and easier to exploit. And so instead of having like the notion of class consciousness and an internationalist class solidarity with fellow workers, mm-hmm. we have this kind of soft xenophobic rhetoric. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a class consciousness that lacks an intersectional appreciation of the the uh you know kind of racist violence that goes along with exploit exporting industry to foreign countries uh and you know this there's this kind of it, it still creeps around this notion of like um the relationship between globalized capital and a globalized workforce and you know as marx uh wrote you know the, people say that communists want to abolish all nations and it's the point still stands that the working man has no nation not really and thus you can't take from them something they don't have and so what murray has is this weird obsession with you got to buy american as if that labor was somehow intrinsically better than the than the exploited labor uh that is being you know appropriated thousands of miles away exactly and there's 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 so much we can uh get into with murray like uh not to fast forward us too much but later in the film when uh the gremlins are busy destroying the town they're uh some some of their damage is like uh psychotic violence and other parts of their damage are like whimsical hijinks yeah, yeah. and one of the one of the more uh wacky moments are the gremlins are are messing up old man futterman's tv by by like you know mess by breaking down the antenna Oh yeah, and, don't, they, uh, don't they tune it to like some artsy uh, French black and white film at one point? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, uh, Murray Murray kind of gets up and he's like he's like banging on the TV and and he there, there's this like really really softly delivered line that's almost a throwaway where where he says uh, we should have bought a Zenith. And, and Zenith Zenith was one of the last uh, CRT TV manufacturers in the United States. Even in a kind of throwaway moment, he's still got this obsession with enforcing american economic dominance through through purchasing power but if you want to if you want an insight into the uh as i say the paradigmatic example of you know legitimate concerns working class uh white man you've got to look at murray futterman because that's also the thing that everyone sort of forgets right working class is not racially homogenous but so often in political discourse you know, class politics is is written over with this crude racialized discourse. 
Yeah, yeah. When 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 the centrist Dems start talking about the working class, they're specifically referring to the Murray Futtermans of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And and not and not the Mr. Wong, the the uh, Chinese gentleman who ran that shop. You know, he is also a working class American with working class concerns. Yeah. But he's been written out of the discourse. And of course, he's been he's been sort of trodden over, you know, as as Randall Peltzer waltzes into his shop and demands that he hand over what is clearly a very kind of personally and culturally significant artifact just for two hundred dollars yeah and, and and like you know the the way the movie opens up we have like the, the, this discourse of you know or, orientalism overlaid with settler colonialism you know randall pelter just walks in and he's like i shall take your culture now have money be gone and of course that choice you know isn't really a choice you can't have voluntary exchange when uh as you said right at the opening scene we're, we're in uh clearly in a chinese neighborhood but it looks pretty like run down you know it looks like it it's not an affluent part of town people uh maybe struggling to get by and this guy just waltzes in and demands that he can take away something so valuable uh the store owner even says that you know with mogwai you, there is a responsibility and he just says oh well if i bet if i if i give you the money then you can't you can't enforce that so capitalism there liquidating any of the kind of social and and cultural values that might be embedded in the mogwai uh, as it's done to all other social values when randall brings the mogwai home and gives it to billy you know, like every, you know, because, you know, Gizmo's adorable. Gizmo, Gizmo is like if a Furby wasn't a little nightmare and was really cute instead. Gizmo is adorable. Let's let's not front. Let's not be around the bush. No. Yeah. Gizmo. Gizmo is 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 like a little baby gritty. So cute. Just desperate to be memed. <laughs> There, there's that exchange. Every every household could have one of these. We can call it the Peltzer Pet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's already it's already like like he has already completely appropriated uh, this bit of culture and washed it entirely. Seeing, of all he's any, seeing is dollar signs. Yeah, he's just seeing money. He does. He's not appreciating the creature at all. It's been washed entirely of any meaning or significance it might have had, and it's now it's now this exchangeable economic unit. Yep, all all that is all that is solid melts into air, as uh, Marx wrote again. You know, capitalism dissolves all of those meaningful bonds, whether they be kind of social, or moral, or cultural, or even religious, and and instead replaces it with this cold logic of profit and loss. And you you can see that operating at almost every level of this film. Um, in the town itself, uh, there's this great detail. Uh, earlier on, where one of the they're selling Christmas trees in the in the town oh square, yeah in the town square, and in a great little detail, one of the cops comes along and tries to get their tree for free. Um, and of course, if this was like a Frank uh, Capra movie, then maybe maybe that would happen. And they go, well, of course, we'll give you your tree, Officer McGillicuddy. But, right? Yeah, yeah. But this time he's like, no, you got to pay for that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not even um, if I'm remembering the scene correctly, it's not even the proprietor of the shop that's like, hey, man, you got to pay for your tree. It's it's another one of the community members. It's just like, dude, I bought mine. Message is clear, people. Don't let the cops try and walk all over you. Right. Either either we are unified as a community or we are fragmented against each other. That is the lesson of the Christmas tree lot scene in Grounds 1984. <laughs> 
And we've talked a little bit about the, the labor context and the kind of class dynamics that are at work in this town. But I think maybe it's time to sort of jump into talking a little bit more about the main attraction, if you will, the main event, which is, of course, the appearance of the gremlins from our one adorable Mogwai. And maybe do you want to quickly describe how this comes about, firstly? So, so the gremlin gremlins appear, um, I guess, to, to Billy's credit, we should be fair. He doesn't in- intentionally, like, dunk Gizmo in a bucket of water. He, no, he's, that's uh, true. He, he's, he's very kind and very loving with Gizmo, and he's, he, he accidentally knocks over a glass of water, which spills onto Gizmo, and, and triggers the transformation where we're in a bunch of uh, little fur balls shoot out of Gizmo's back, and then uh, proceed uh, to grow into tiny little mogwai. And these mogwai are, it seems a bit more antagonistic. Um, they see, they're kind of slightly more aggressive. Um, and so Billy takes one of them off to his, um, to his school teacher and the school teacher wants to run some tests. And there's this kind of distressing scene where this mogwai is in a cage and the teacher like grabs hold of it and draws some blood out with a syringe. And so this poor mogwai is squeaking in terror uh, as, as the syringe kind of draws out this, this liquid, but, but the mogwai then gets access to food past midnight yeah he's, he's he steals uh so the teacher is mr hansen and uh you know ki- kind of like in a knowing moment of revenge you can see it in the gremlin's eyes he like pulls this the bit of sandwich over after midnight <laughs> and and helps himself uh and billy tries to feed the the mogwai that he he has got left yeah they 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 chewed they chewed the uh power cord for his little clock so billy thinks it's before midnight but the gremlins the gremlins are one up on him uh and so he goes this is great moment where he goes to the fridge and there's just this huge plate of chicken legs (laughs) (laughs) and feeds them this plate of chicken and then they enter this kind of uh chrysalis that forms around them in this kind of gooey uh abject accumulation of, of stuff and they look they look eerily reminiscent of the uh, alien eggs they they are like a distant cousin of the xenomorph um that's my that's my take on so this. so your take is actually uh, pretty close to being canonically correct because and if our <laughs> listeners are are diligent they've already done this if you've read the novelizations of gremlins, you would know that the gremlins are genetically engineered by aliens to be the perfect pet for humans. That is amazing. I, I had no idea. So you are you are distinct. intuitively you are you have an intuitive awareness of the nature of the mogwai. Of the mogwai that <laughs> they then they then hatch uh, out of these these cocoons or these um, eggs in a kind of gruesome bit of body horror as gremlins rather than than mogwai and the gremlins are bigger and uh, seemingly insatiably violent uh, and the gremlins go on a rampage across the town um, until they are stopped in a way that I find both really informative and sort of horrifying but before we get into more details of the film, should we just talk about the gremlins for a bit? <laughs> I, I do believe we should talk about the gremlins for maybe six to seven years. The gremlins are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we how do we kind of theoretically approach these weird creatures? 
So, so the gremlins, the gremlins are intended by the creators of the film to be metaphors for humans broadly, which opens the door to approaching gremlins in the same way we can approach humans, which is really any way we choose. So I think what, we, what we'll do is we'll provide a few potential readings of the gremlins. Uh, neat, n- n- we're not trying to be exhaustive here but maybe show the way in which something even as kind of superficial and disposable as a bit of 80s kids uh, horror can be a useful diagnostic tool for our contemporary capitalist condition. So the gremlins, when they emerge, form themselves into uh, this violent crew that seeks to kind of take often quite uh, extreme revenge on the town. Uh, the teacher is found dead or... or I'm I'm reading it as dead, uh, with a hypodermic syringe stuck in him. Oh yeah, he um, is. He is. He, I we I think we're led to believe that he is very dead. He has just been straight up murked by these gremlins. Which and, and it's a, it's a recurring theme of the gremlins that they kind of exist. What one of one of like the categories of horror films is the revenge film. You know, so, so someone part of an, an oppressed or marginalized group seeking revenge against the oppressor. And, and the gremlins are enacting this on uh, across the spectrum. All different kinds of, of revenge horror is present here. What, like 30 years before Raw comes out, we have this like animal rights revenge horror where that gremlin takes down Mr. Hansen for experimenting on it. Uh, which is a righteous bit of uh, horror because Mr. Hansen clearly deserves it. Um, apparently, the, in the original uh, cut, Mr. Hansen was found with his face entirely covered with hypodermic syringes. But uh, Spielberg, who was the executive producer, told them to rewrite that scene because it was it was too dark. It was too yeah, dark. Yeah, the, the original it. script uh, included uh, beheadings. It included gremlins being like graphically stabbed in the chest. This, this was a much, uh, it leaned much more hard into uh, horror than it does in the final cut. But the gremlins absolutely do seek to take revenge upon this town for all of their, the injustices that they've been forced to suffer and all the indignities they've been forced to, forced to endure. And there's this kind of libidinal, uh, cathartic, carnivalesque violence that they enact because uh, they're perfectly capable of picking up weaponry. Uh, there are guns, there are knives, there are crossbows, <laughs> there are syringes. There, there are there's and, uh, Christmas caroling. There, there is card playing. <laughs> These gremlins cover every possible base. So here's the question, though: Can we read the gremlins as a revolutionary force? I, I think there are ways to to read them as a revolutionary force. I think that's definitely, especially when you consider Stripe as like the, uh, the model of the vanguardist gremlin. Uh, comrade, comrade Stripe, Stripe yes, insist upon calling him. So Stripe is the the leader of the Gremlins. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, definitely, definitely, he is he is the Gremlin that is concerned most with organizing the Gremlins into some kind of uh, actionable force into a into a into a, a vanguard of um, animalistic uh, political violence uh, because it is politically motivated. You, you know, the teacher is a figure, as is an embodiment of the ideological state apparatus that is the school. Uh, the gremlins make a, a hilarious and absolutely catharsic appearance at Miss Steagle's house. Yes. Um, <laughs> In a moment where we all cheer, but Stripe is the one who kind of organizes them and tries to lead them uh, and is almost successful too, right? So we could absolutely read the Gremlins as an, as an 
a narco-communist revolutionary project that is unafraid of using violence to for revolutionary ends. Because it doesn't shy shy away from the violence at all. Yeah, they they have got very specific aims in mind and they are thoroughly prepared to use violence uh to enact them. Uh and a lot of it is kind of like the what they do at Mystigal's house is they sneak in and like use her stair lift to send her flying through the window. So there is a kind of public performative aspect to it as well, which I think is really interesting. There's a lot to say about about the modalities of violence uh, that the gremlins enact. And I think this is part of the, the revenge horror tradition is that the violence is categorically disorganized and primarily cathartic. You know, yes, thinking absolutely. like cornerstone uh, of, of revenge horror, you know, I spit on your grave. It's it, it is a very problematic film that doesn't spend a lot of time meditating on the violence that is the the revenge itself and instead just kind of revels in the catharsis of having revenge at all of being in a position where you can take revenge absolutely but there is a moment there's a moment in this film where i think my my attempt to read the gremlins as a kind of proto-revolutionary force starts to fall apart a bit and this is because of the 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 limitations of Comrade Stripe, uh, because there is this kind of climactic, like cathartic bit of public spectacle where Murray Futterman has his has his snowplow stolen. <laughs> yes, Miss Steagle is thrown out of the window of her fancy property in a bit of ironic violence, and it seems like they they've reached a kind of success point, right? And then we cut to. The scene in the bar. Um, do you want to mm, maybe yep. just, do you, you want to maybe describe what the scene in the bar is? That the one I'm talking about. So so uh, we we ent- we enter the bar, the same bar that we've seen earlier, and and the gremlins have just just destroyed the place. You know, they're throwing glasses around, they're partying, they're they're flying around on the ceiling fan. They're all, they're all they're all smoking as well with like six six cigarettes at once. Right? Yeah. They've they've since started to smoke and to gamble and to drink, and uh, they're they're tormenting Kate, who's who's still the barkeep, and has somehow gotten roped into serving them. Working a shift in the Gremlin Bar, which looks looks really genuinely terrifying. Right? I, I think I think the in terms of the service industry, the worst possible shift is the Gremlin Apocalypse shift. Uh, I mean, we've all been that, man. We've all been. Oh that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, when the when the gremlins get out of work, it is the worst time to be at the bar. But this is this is like the moment where the kind of cathartic violence turns into a kind of hedonism, right? They're all drinking now. Some of them have like started wearing specific clothes and outfits, and in a way, this is the bit where. You know, Comrade Stripe's good Leninist principles of party building have been undercut by the plasticity and uh, hedonism of neoliberal capitalism. Yeah, to to quote to quote Adorno, something is provided for all so that none may escape. You know, they're they're all wearing costumes. They're all dressing up as caricatures of of different like types of people and different attitudes and movie characters. Yeah, their their energy has been co-opted by uh, capitalist aesthetics, and now and now, uh, and we're going to see that when we cut to the theater scene in a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And and instead of being focused on the righteous, cathartic violence of their political projects, 
taking revenge upon those who have oppressed them or experimented on them. There is this kind of uh, seductive aspect to late neoliberal capitalism where you can be entertained, you can be uh, intoxicated, you can smoke, you can, uh, you know, there are the kind of these pleasures that are laid out for them. And they're these, like I said, these are these libidinal, uh, desiring creatures that have sprung out of the back of one mogwai. And so they indulge, right? They kind of rush into the, the, the desiring machine that is the Irish bar on, on the town square. Right. And, and, not, and, and in the face of, of becoming uh, very, very moralizing with this dialogue, it's not the fact that the, the, the gremlins, because at this point, the gremlins have secured the town. Right. Yeah, like at, yeah. the, at this point, the gremlins are in charge of, of this small American town. And and it's not the fact that they're drinking and not the fact that they're engaging in these the, these these kind of like hedonistic joy. That's the problem at this point. It's it's the fact that all of the things that the gremlins are doing are are things that capital would want the gremlins to be doing with any kind of social mobility or social energy. Yeah, absolutely. It isn't, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an, uh, someone who doesn't believe in the kind of pleasures of the world. But it's like those pleasures are exactly what capitalism wants them to be doing instead of solidifying their control upon this town and, and you know, maybe building a new world in the wreckage of the old. There is this uh, stalling. That scene is where things kind of stall and they become these kind of parodies of themselves almost. Yeah, they, they, like, they all kind of just start trans... Besides Stripe, they all just start transforming into little caricatures of people. Uh, which is the moment where you kind of think, Ah, maybe maybe capitalism will endure. You know, you can't imagine a gremlin world uh, because you know capitalism is too resilient. It's this. It's the this, colonization uh, of the imagination. You know, we can't we can't see a gremlin tomorrow. We can only see a capitalist tomorrow. Uh, capitalist realism, folks. Even on the level of gremlins, like we like this is an interesting point, though, right? Mark Fish has written extensively about this, especially in. in Capitalist Realism and Ghosts of My Life, where he talks about the fact that in that moment, I'm extrapolating a bit here, <laughs> in that moment <laughs> of kind of like cathartic, spectacular violence, you see the potential for a gremlin's utopia, right? <laughs> They've taken their revenge upon, upon all of those who have oppressed them. And yet, at the moment that that utopia seems ready to be brought into being, you see the logic of capitalism remains and it starts to kind of re-territorialize around them and as they're enjoying the pleasures of a hard-won victory really what they're doing is they're kind of anathematizing that revolutionary libidinal energy back into the logic of neoliberal capitalism yeah yeah the the, the, the gremlins the gremlins ultimately get co-opted again you know they 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 recreate all of the structures they just tore down yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um, but this is one of the advantages of understanding the gremlins as basically a stand-in for humans. You know, we can read them in so many different ways. Um, so full of this kind of diverse uh, potential uh, that can be channeled into so many different theoretical understandings. Uh, I was wondering, you, you maybe had another different take on the gremlins, right? 
Oh my god, yes, yes. So so another another <laughs> another wild take you can have on the gremlins, because the gremlins are pure wild take energy. Is you you could <laughs> this read This is what we're doing, folks. This is what we're doing. This this, this is this is in fact this you know, we wanted to save this announcement for later, but we are now an exclusive gremlins podcast. This is just gonna be we are resur- we are in full collaboration with something like the Institute of Gremlins Two Studies. The the Institute of Gremlins Two Studies is my inspiration for what we're doing right here. Right. So so you can read the Gremlins as Lacanian desire. Right. You know mm-hmm. each 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 Gremlin is is uh, kind of this subject of this psychoanalytic uh, desire that we have. Right. We want something that is lost to us. Right. We want the control of our own communities back. We want to be able to be free to act as we would without having to be checked constantly. And that's what the gremlins are offering to us. But as Lacanian desire goes, we cannot have this. We cannot have what the, uh, you know, gremlin desire subject is. Yes, absolutely. There is a, uh, an, a kind of hopeless negativity within subjectivity itself Mm -hmm. so we can see the gremlins as what we wish we were free enough to be uh because there is uh we recognize them we recognize them in their in their costumes in their uh kitsch in their violence in their seemingly bottomless appetite for drink and gambling and smoking and casual violence you know, we recognize something of ourselves, but there is a desire within ourselves that is, you know, this is Lacan's famous point of the barred subject, right? Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't, we don't really want what we say that we want. Yes. And so the gremlin is the, the object of the desire, right? You know, the gremlin is everything that we wish we could be, but absolutely cannot be. Uh, I like that in the space of like 20 minutes, we've gone from Leninist political violence to the negativity of Lacanian psychoanalysis all through the medium of gremlins. And I, and I think that's because the most power we, we started at the top of the podcast by talking about the most powerful gremlin that has ever lived. And that's Zizek. <laughs> the, the true uh, Comrade Stripe. <laughs> right. Right. See, Comrade Stripe wasn't defeated at the end of Gremlins 1. He managed to escape. You know, one of the little orbs shot off of his back and then that orb later became one of the most popular philosophers alive. Uh, the, 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 the pioneer of Hegelian Lacanian Marxism. That, that orb uh, put on a dirty sweatshirt and, and combined <laughs> Lacan and Marx, and that's how we get to where we are now. I do think, though, one, one final thing I will add, which is the notion of the positivity of desire, right? Because normally, normally we tend to read... I mean, thanks to the Freudian legacy, we tend to read desire in negative terms, right? Desire is based upon that which you do not have. But in the words of Deleuze and Guattari, if desire is pure positivity, then look what can happen. And if there is uh, one thing I will say about the gremlins, it is that their desire is not negative, but it's positive, right? They're these things which spawn multiplicities of themselves. They are active. Their desire goes out and forcefully changes the world in in violence and 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 alcohol right so it, it, may, it may be it may be chaotic it may be completely unrestrained it may be uh, doomed by its inability to organize but ultimately the uh the desire of the gremlin is a desire for a better tomorrow 
Absolutely. So solidarity with 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 the gremlin mass, uh, <laughs> and and this podcast reiterates the need for a strong vanguard organization <laughs> to to educate and and form the 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 gremlin into a class for itself. Yeah. The, if if the gremlins would have uh, gained class consciousness, they would have been completely unstoppable. Uh, that is that is the danger. That is what this film desperately tries to prevent from happening. And, and, it, pre- and, and it prevents that in a, a very interesting cinematic way through the use of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Ah, yes. This is this amazing intertextual moment. I mean, we talked a little bit about the capitalist realism, the way that the pleasures of capitalism are used to re-territorialize and redirect revolutionary energy and revolutionary potential. But like all of us, Gremlins love going to the movies. They see they seem to love everything about it, right? And so towards the end of the film, they all of the gremlins, which is like implied to be hundreds, maybe maybe more, go to the town's movie theater and watch um Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And there's this and to underscore the moment uh to underscore this theme of 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 labor and class the moment from the film that they show is um, the Seven Dwarves singing the Hi Ho song, <laughs> which, is, which is a working song. That's their mind song. And all of these gremlins, these, these uh, uh, ungovernable, uh, libidinous uh, revolutionaries <laughs> are singing along <laughs> with, this, with this working class anthem. <laughs> right? And like, like in, in, in that moment, you see that like, Oh god, there are so many layers in Gremlins. You know, you can go so deep with this film. But but we as an as a member of the audience are watching the audience of Gremlins appropriate a working class song as mm-hmm. as a fun little jingle in a cartoon that exists in our lived reality as an appropriation of working class labor. Absolutely. This this I mean, uh, our, our hot takes are textually justified. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, the only hot take we have that is even slightly speculative is I have never seen Zizek eat after midnight or be in contact <laughs> with water. So uh, so our takes on Stripe is a Leninist. Uh, the, <laughs> the gremlins themselves are stand in for the negativity of Lacanian desire. Totally fine. Uh, we are a bit skeptical as to whether we could count Zizek. You know, somebody at his next talk, just drop like a glass of water on him and see what happens. Zizek, if you're if you're listening, I'm I'm calling you out. I challenge you to <laughs> openly post a video online of of yourself putting uh, perhaps a hand or maybe even sipping from a glass of water if you would be so bold. This is a call out. This, 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 is, this is a hashtag call out uh, at uh, Zizek tweets. We're coming at you. um but this (laughs) this this final moment this final moment where they're in the movie theater and they're all kind of entranced by the images on the screen that's the moment that billy and kate decide to break in open up the gas line and brutally murder these gremlins like the the theater is blown up is blown sky high and the the gremlin mass is incinerated right yeah they 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 burn the gremlins alive and burn down their town theater in the process i mean if there's anything that exemplifies the 
the uh, the power of, of kind of mass media and the the subject of the critique from people like Adorno and Horkheimer better. I think it's this moment, right? Again, that revolutionary energy, that libidinous desire to transform the world in an orgy of cathartic violence is redirected and distracted by the magic of the moving image, right? And it's very important and key, I think, that it's classic. Uh, Disney that's used oh, yeah. as a way of 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 sort of sedating and 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 ethnotizing the 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 gremlin uh, uh, body politic, and it's that moment that capitalism's staunchest defenders uh, decide to enact some brutal violence upon them. The Frankfurt School were right, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Gremlins validates the theories of Adorno and Horkheimer. Right, as as much as uh, as much as Adorno would have been an absolute bummer to hang out with, uh, uh, Adorno <laughs> and Horkheimer kind of nailed it on this one. Uh, the culture industry is not only a means of um, making working class revolution more difficult; it is also something that is defended with uh, vicious force. Um, but that is not quite the end of the story because there is one final. Scene no, left. no, you can't. You can't take out Stripe that easy. No, no, because Stripe, uh, in a wonderful moment, goes looking for milk duds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wanders out of the movie theater looking to indulge his appetites. Uh, hey, he's he's worked up a hunger. He has been hard at work this movie trying to hey, trying to destroy again, this town. No judgment. Um, any revolutionary, there should be a there should be a luxury aspect to any revolution. Um, and it should so be milk goes, duds. And he goes looking for his his well earned milk duds. And then we have this final scene, which plays out very much like the final battle of a slasher film, right? Oh yeah, especially like even uh, a, a Stripe is uh, stalking Billy with a chainsaw at one point. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is very much homage. calling out to slasher films. Uh, that that the monster. That capitalism truly feel, fears is is the slasher with the chainsaw taking on that emblem, uh, you know, of the of the most one of the most profitable forms of horror because they're very low budget and easy to produce is the slasher. Mm-hmm. So I think it's I think it's good on Comrade Stripe for taking on the mantle uh, of Leatherface. Uh, subverting him to be someone who's striking out at the uh, at Billy who who works in a bank, <laughs> but that is not how it ends. That is the final confrontation. Really, isn't between the two of them uh, because Billy is carrying uh, a secret weapon, if you will, which is Gizmo. Yes, yeah, yeah. The final confrontation is not Stripe and Billy. It is Stripe and Gizmo. So. <laughs> well, what that means then is if we're gonna if we're gonna argue that Stripe is a kind of Leninist vanguard organizer, what does that make Gizmo? That makes Gizmo a filthy centrist. That's what that's what Gizmo is. Giz, Gizmo is capitulating to the center. Gizmo is fishhook theory. <laughs> Giz, Gizmo is the the the, the bootlicking centrist. <laughs> Gizmo is a class traitor. Uh, what are like I'm out of like like leftist buzzwords for for people who suck, but Gizmo is all of these things. In uh, addition to being so cuddly, uh, counter uh, he is a he is a cuddly counter revolutionary. Yes, yes. Yeah, Gizmo Gizmo has benefited in in the lap of of the the center right, 
Mm-hmm. He, he has he has disproportionately enjoyed uh, their their luxury and their wealth, and he is more than willing to oppress the rest of uh, Mogwai and Gremlin kind to continue his disproportionate access to this. And he yeah he he sells him out right he sells out Comrade Stripe hard, um, and it's 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 pretty sad you know he exposes him to bright light, and the comrade is vanquished in a gruesome bit of body horror. And yeah, you, you're right. He, Gizmo is a splitter. He splits the radical Mogwai-Gremlin alliance in two and sides instead with the, with the uh, capitalist exploiters. Right, the people, the people who want him to live all of his days in a sunless box. Uh, fed occasional chicken legs. <laughs> <laughs> and then we come to the very end of the film right then we come to the very close of things um oh oh quickly i I think it's worth noting that this film features a lot of deaths there are a lot of implied human deaths there are a a lot of on-screen gremlin deaths and uh, gremlins get stabbed and microwaved and blown up and, and like it's a you know it's a children's horror movie. It's it's gross for the kids, and a lot of the gremlin deaths are they're they're kind of funny. You know, like this this is definitely a movie geared towards a younger audience. Oh, a hundred percent, yeah. But Stripe's death is the only death in the film that is deeply humanized. We are with Stripe the moment he's trying to rekindle uh, his his gremlin people. You know, he he dunks yeah. his hand into the fountain. His back starts bumbling. He's about to create some more gremlins, and then and then Gizmo pulls the curtains and lets the sunlight in and and bleaches away this this thing. And as as Stripe dies, he's like crawling on the floor and melting. And we kind of like watch him as he suffers in agony. You know, he's he's the only death that we actually experience on the terms of the dying. Yeah, I mean, the camera doesn't cut away. There is no like sticky joke made out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it is. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. It's the death that is treated most seriously. <laughs> I mean, he is, he is, he risks one last political gambit. You know, he tries to generate just from, from out of himself with kind of sheer force of will, another cohort of, uh, gremlins to, to, to carry things forward. And that's when the vicious counter-revolutionary, uh, class traitor, <laughs> <laughs> Howie Mandel, <laughs> Howie Mandel. <laughs> decides to um, annihilate this this giant of the gremlin left uh, with a burst of sunlight. Damn! <laughs> moment moment of silence for for Comrade Stripe. This is dark. This has got bleak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we do end with a with a sequel hook. The entire exchange where uh, Mr. Wong comes back to yeah, to get yeah. his gremlin because he wound up finding out from his grandson that the gremlin was sold. Uh, there is there is this great moment where he returns and tells them directly that they're not ready, they're not capable of living up to the responsibility of uh, taking care of the Mogwai and. Gizmo is forcibly removed from them. Um, yeah, Mr. Wong turns up and, and tells them bluntly that they're not worthy of taking care of the Mogwai. And to be honest, I feel pretty good about seeing Gizmo go back in his box because that is, that is the least he deserves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's good to see the, the, the gremlin. 
time. And it's, it's good to see, you know, the, the kind of like underscoring of the point that some, some things can exist outside the bounds of capital. Some things can uh, never have a value attributed to them. And some things are fundamentally uh, corrupted and reduced when you attempt to uh, make them saleable. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, we've, we've lived through the legacy of that point. We've lived through that, the way in which neoliberal politics has decided to place um, an economic value on everything, which is capitalism doing what it does, right? It, it seeks to quantify every kind of relationship in monetary terms, turning uh, the people that we love into objects of exchange, right? The social relations between people become the material relations between things. And so it is good. I think it's good and right that the Mogwai is removed from, from that at the end. And maybe um, we kind of can take away the point that there are certain things that cannot be bought and sold, not without terrible consequences for all concerned. And this is something we were talking about before we started recording the episode, but I know you wanted to talk about the, uh, the nature of gift giving and the holiday season in the context of capital. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, this is, this is something that Derrida has written about quite a lot, actually. The fact that the gift uh, is something which resists the logic of capitalism, um, as the gift is something that is given freely and is not given with any expectation of reciprocity. And in fact, you know, maybe that's something to kind of bear in mind. The, the importance of Christmas is not necessarily about, you know, how much have you spent on somebody. It's about the meaning and the, and the, the, the voluntary freedom to, to give a, an expression of something that cannot be economically quantified. You know, presents and, uh, and gifts are meaningful, not because of their price tag, but they are meaningful because of the value and feeling and connection that they represent. So whilst we don't encourage uh, blatant, the blatant consumerism, the consumption and, and ostentatious uh, displays of capitalist purchasing that seems to underpin so much of these kind of this end of year holiday, I think it's, I think it's important and maybe, maybe helpful to kind of think about the gift is something that resists the utter quantification of capitalism. Gifts for the ones that we care about, the ones who are important to us, uh, are something more than just a dollar amount or a pounds and pence amount, but are instead an expression of something that is ultimately beyond the understanding of capitalism, uh, something deeper and far more rewarding than just uh, a monetary value. And I think I think, you know, to, to bring that back to Gremlins, we see this at the, the end of the film, you know, like we see we see that Gizmo Gizmo cannot. This is something that cannot be reduced to a monetary value. But we see we see what does transcend this is as hard as we've been on Gizmo. He does develop a genuine uh, bond with Billy. They do become friends through the course of their misadventures in this film. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and they're and their final little goodbye. Like you see you, you see that you see something that cannot be monetized no matter how yeah. hard you try you see something that is only corrupted by being monetized yeah absolutely um and i think maybe that's the takeaway here right we've we've maybe uh been throwing out some hot takes <laughs> but there's... right this got this got a lot harder than i was anticipating it getting <laughs> yeah we we went in <laughs> we went we went in we we um, went we went oh we we invoked that we invoked the zizek and now we are paying for handling magics well beyond our our power <laughs> but you know let's let's try and bring it back to a kind of 
maybe slightly more uh, sincere note to finish on that, you know, the, the kind of idea that there are things which um, exist outside of the realm of capitalist exchanges, uh, an idea that has to be defended and held open and insisted upon because it is in those things that we might see echoes of better world that is yet to come that is struggling to be born uh, as monstrous as it might appear uh, you know again this is making me think of randall peltzer like he he goes around trying to to con people with his wacky little trinkets and even even at the end you know when uh, miss mr wong is kind of scolding them for almost destroying the world with gremlins you know Rand- randall peltzer is like uh hey you know as as a means of apology would you like my uh useless mechanical ashtray <laughs> and then and then mr wong mr wong kind of rolls his eyes and he's like no the man at the gas station already tried to con me with one <laughs> and and like you know, you know, Randall Peltzer still still doesn't quite still doesn't quite get that it's not about the material exchange. It's about the community building. It's about how we appreciate each other. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, if that's the that is the Christmas message of the horror vanguard. Let's uh, resist the commodification of, of Christmas and all that it represents, and insist upon the value of our comrades, the value of our friends, and those who are important to us. Um, beyond merely what we spend, merely what we purchase, um, and hold open that space where value is determined by something other than the uh, capitalist logic of the market. Do you want to uh, truly give the gift uh, that keeps on giving this season, the gift that transcends the dehumanizing nature of capital? Give the gift of sharing the link to our Patreon to your friends, family, and your wealthy acquaintances. Uh, I was yeah, absolutely. Let's redistribute some wealth, uh, comrades. <laughs> All of your rich relatives, uh, send it to them. <laughs> and we uh, we very much appreciate your support. You can find us on SoundCloud. We will post uh, the pod on all other many other um, podcast aggregators and distribution services if you want to follow us on twitter we are at horror vanguard and we are both on there on our own accounts as well but thank you so much for tuning in uh, and whatever you're doing over the holiday season we hope you have an incredible time we'll be taking a little bit of time off and we'll be, we will be back with more spooky content in 2019 Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay spooky.